0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. I hope as we go through our time in the Word together today, all those truths would echo in your heart what it means to belong to Christ, and today, what it means to belong to Christ by what it means to belong to His body, the church. Uh, last week, we did um, a little topical talk together on why go to church. And I'd like, if you didn't listen last week, uh, if you missed the talk about attending church because you weren't in church, go back, go back and listen to last week's talk and let that be a little foundation into today. Uh, today, we're going to talk about why to join a church. Now, I'm not specifically today talking about What to look for in a church. We will mention that briefly. Or what makes a good church to join. Those are good questions to ask and we'll we'll cover some of that. But specifically from the Bible, what is church membership? And what does it mean to belong to a church? And why should you belong to a local church? Our world is so encapsulated by one word. Our society, the spirit of the moment is individualism. You do you. Be yourself. Discover yourself. Find yourself. Me, myself, and I. All these sort of mantras that are put out there in the culture that are, if we're not careful, imbibed by us as believers. And as it is taken in by us as believers, it's brought into the local church. And without anyone knowing it, the spirit of the age creeps its way into the church where even in the idea of joining and being a part of a local church, we have this mindset of me, myself, and I, my time, my worship, my Jesus, my relationship. In fact, it found its way into an old country song, me and Jesus got our own thing going. you might know that song? Me and Jesus got our own thing going. And even a southern gospel song says, as long as I've got King Jesus, I don't need nobody else. And as admirable and as spiritual as those things sound on the surface, me and Jesus got our own thing going. As long as I've got Jesus, I don't need nobody else. Nothing could be further from the truth. And nothing could be further from the Biblical concept of what it means to belong to Christ and what it means to belong to the local church. Now, if we take Jesus out of it and we take the Bible out of it, this boils itself down to nothing more than just regular old humanism. Humanism that says, I can do this. I don't need an authority. I don't need a teacher. I certainly don't need this idea of submission to anything or to anyone. My relationship with Jesus is all that matters. Now, church might be a nice addition to my relationship with Jesus. Church might help my relationship with Jesus, but it's certainly not necessary. Belonging to a local church through covenant membership certainly isn't something that's biblical or that's required of me or that's really all that helpful. Even if at times it might be helpful just to plug in and learn a little more and be around some people. But generally speaking, it's me, myself and I, me and Jesus, we're fine, my relationship, my worship, my time, my devotion, and that's really all that matters. Well, first of all, let me say what I mean by church membership. And to do that, I found a wonderful quote by Jonathan Lehman, who writes a lot about church membership and what it means to belong to a local church. He said this, "'Church membership is a formal relationship between a local church and a Christian, characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church.' A couple key words that pop out there that we're going to revisit a couple times today during the message, discipleship, affirmation, and oversight. All of this is what it means to belong to a church and what we mean by covenant church membership. We agree that church is important, maybe. After last week, why go to church? Maybe you say, okay, pastor, I see why going to church is important. I see why regular church attendance and being faithful to the preaching of the word, I see why that's important. But what about this church membership stuff? can I just go to church and not join a church? Why is that so important? Is it even in the Bible? And if I could find it in the Bible, what relevance does it have for now? We've got clubs. We've got social organizations. We've got charitable organizations. We do stuff. We're part of other stuff. Why belong to the local church? What difference does it really make? Does it make a difference in my relationship with Jesus? Does it make a difference in my salvation? Well, I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at sort of the, the final part of the events on that first day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit has descended, he's filled the 120 disciples, Peter has preached the gospel, and now we sort of come to the end of that moment. All the the stuff is over, Peter has preached, and now we're in this moment sort of of response. Acts 2, starting in verse 37. When they heard this, that is Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "'Brothers, what shall we do?' So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." Number one today, church membership is biblical. Church membership is biblical. In fact, the word church that we use so often, why join a church? Why go to church? That word church, when you look at your Greek New Testament, would just simply be the word ekklesia. Ekklesia means literally called out ones, and there's been a lot of attempting to over-spiritualize what that means to be the called out ones. It's a fairly common word in ancient Greek that just means an assembly or a gathering of people. And so it can be a little confusing when you read your New Testaments, and I love the word church, there's nothing wrong with the word church, but it it might mean something different once we understand what it really means, and that it just means an assembly of people, a gathering of people. In fact, that's what it's meant from the beginning. All the way back in the Old Testament, when the congregation of Israel would gather together, the word was kahal, assembly, congregation, gathering. And when they came to translate the Old Testament into Greek for Greek-speaking Jews and others, what word did they use for the word kahal or congregation except the word Ecclesia? So if you read the New Testament and the Old Testament in Greek, you see the same word used for both the congregation and the gathering of the people of Israel and the congregation and the gathering of God's new covenant people, the fulfillment of Israel in the church. You see the same word and all it means is the idea of belonging to a people. The idea of belonging to God and being God's person has always meant being part of God's people being part of God's assembly, part of God's congregation. It was true for Israel, It's true for the church, it will be true into eternity. When we are saved as individuals, we are incorporated. And that word means embodied. We're put into something bigger than ourselves. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, two books to the right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just two verses, verses 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now Paul uses a handy metaphor for the body of the church in the human body. And he says, Just as the human body is made of many members and many parts, all doing their job, but forming one body, one unit, so it is in the body of Christ, individual parts, individual members doing their job, fulfilling their service, but all part of one body in Christ, drinking of one Holy Spirit, that is the body of Christ the fellowship of believers, the assembly of the saints is one unit, one body, working as one for one common purpose. The understanding of the church in the early church was that coming to Christ equaled coming to the church. That when you came to Christ in faith and repentance and you professed that outwardly in baptism, you were added to a number. Even here today in our reading in Acts chapter 2, we saw that, didn't we? Those who heard Peter's words, they asked him, what shall we do? They had to repent for themselves. They had to submit to baptism for themselves. But after that, what does it say? They were added to the body of Christ. They were added to the number that were being saved. In the early church, a Christian who was unbaptized and unconnected to the local church was unheard of. We just didn't do it. Now, Baptist churches, a long time ago, uh, because we were rightly uh, trying to fend off ideas that baptism saved someone, because we were rightly trying to fend off the false doctrine that baptism equals salvation, We separated the two ideas, I believe, too much, to where now you have this idea of someone who can be saved, but is not baptized. And in the early church there was no confusion. They understood that being dunked in water did not save someone. But there was such a connection between coming to faith in Christ and submitting to baptism and joining the local church that the idea of one without the other was just unheard of. It did not happen. Look here in our text from today, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You see that? We have a group of believers who were preaching, the 120. This group heard it, they were baptized, and they were added to that number 3,000 souls on that day. Over in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, We see something uh, similar. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Added. Brought alongside of an already existing company of believers. These were added to that number. Look over in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 verse 5. We see the same language. Verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So the norm, as you look at the testimony of the early church, especially in the book of Acts, the norm is that someone comes to Christ, they hear the word, they receive the word, they profess that through baptism, and they are added to the local church. So that as we look back at Acts chapter 2 verse 38, the people say, what do we do? Peter says, here's what you do as an individual, repent of your sins, place your faith in Christ, repent of your sins, and be baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of your sins. And after you profess your faith through baptism, what does it look like when we come to Acts 2 42? As they were added to the 3000, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. As these individuals came to faith in Christ, as they professed that through baptism, as they were added to the number of already existing believers, they then devoted themselves, number one, to the apostles' teaching, the hearing of the word, as we're doing today. Not just that, they devoted themselves to fellowship, to being with each other. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, not just the Lord's supper, but eating and being together in that way. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. So just as much as they devoted themselves to God through faith in Christ, they were now devoting themselves to one another. And it could be argued from this text that to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is not just to profess Jesus as Lord, and not just to devote yourself to Him, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit living in your life is also in a devotion to each other in the local church. As we go through the New Testament, we see organized language. We see constituted language, that there's a recognized body of believers to which new believers are being added by their profession of faith in Christ and by their baptism. As you go throughout the entire book of Acts, you see phrases like this, the whole church, the disciples, the congregation. You see a gathering of people who are recognized, constituted, and noted that these people are being added too. When you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but as Paul is talking about uh, caring for widows in the church, he uses some interesting language about widows in the church and how to care for them. He speaks about people who are enrolled in a very constitutional, organized language that when it comes to dealing with people's needs, in that case it was widows, but I think Paul would have said dealing with anyone's needs in the church, it needs to be someone who is, as he says, enrolled. Their name is somewhere. There's a recognition that they belong to us. They're on a list somewhere. They are enrolled as part of this gathering of believers. The rest of the New Testament speaks of leadership and offices, specifically in the local church, two offices, that of pastor different words used for pastor, pastor, elder, overseer, bishop, these different words meaning the same thing. One office, elder, pastor, overseer, and the other office that of deacons. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I think it'll be on the screen. You can just read it there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 12 through 13. Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves." Paul speaks of recognized leaders in the church. There's some sort of official um, understanding of membership and leadership of lay people and officers such as deacons and elders, and Paul is telling them here to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you by the word. Respect them, love them, cherish them. Acts 20 verse 28, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, tells them to shepherd the flock of God. And that's that primary word used of an overseer, elder in the New Testament, is the word pastor, which just means shepherd. And what is a shepherd if there is no flock, if there are no sheep, if there's no understandable, recognized body or flock to follow, or to lead, or to guide, or to feed? If that's not there, there is no shepherd, but this is that picture. Shepherd the flock of God. Over in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Peter says something similar to pastors and elders. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, he says, "'Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly.'" I think I put verse 3 later here, Tim, but just go on to 1 Peter 5, 3. "'Not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul talks about considering your elders, those who labor among you in the word, your teachers, consider them worthy of double honor. All of this language shows that in the New Testament there is an understanding of a congregation, a gathered people, a number, an enrolled number, and there's an understanding of official leadership, constituted official leadership in the forms of elders and deacons. This isn't on the screen, and you don't have to turn here, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, we talk about this when we talk about deacons, don't we? There are qualifications for deacons. There are qualifications listed there for pastors or elders. And so we see, even in Paul's writings, this official list of set qualifications for those who will serve in these offices. So nothing in the New Testament gives us the idea that the church was just some loose band of people doing what they want and that pastors and apostles and the overseers and the deacons were just other people just doing what they want. No, the picture of the New Testament is a gathered congregation assembly of people enrolled, understood, constituted, recognized with qualified, recognized, and approved leadership. That's a clear, definable group under clear, definable leadership. So the Bible presents us with a clear understanding that church membership is biblical. Church membership is a defined number of enrolled people, and a defined number of enrolled and qualified leaders. It's a clear concept in Acts. It's a clear concept throughout the rest of the New Testament that to belong to Christ means to belong to the body of Christ. Those two cannot be separated. To belong to Christ means to belong to the body of Christ. There is no concept in the New Testament, underline it, star it, no concept in the New Testament of a believer who is not added to the number. There's no concept of a believer who is not counted among God's people. There's no concept in the New Testament of a believer who is not baptized into the body of believers. But when we see the New Testament, we see clear officers. Clear leaders, clear records, that is the norm in the New Testament. So as a basic foundation today, church membership is biblical. Number two, though, what does it mean? I hear what you're saying, Pastor. I see that concept in the New Testament. That makes sense to me. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be a member of a church? I just go forward. I say a thing. I do the. What does it mean to belong to the local church? Does it make you a Christian? No. Does it provide you salvation? No. Does your name in our big black book or our big computer database, does your name in that record equal your name in the Lamb's book of life? No. I want to remind you from that quote earlier what it does mean. That in that joining, And in that membership, there is an affirmation on the part of the church and these pastors, there is an affirmation of your testimony of faith in Christ. That in you joining a church and submitting to the authority of the local church and the fellowship of the saints, there is accountability. There's teaching. There's nurturing. There's growing. And yes, even that really nasty, ugly word to the modern ear, submission. Not in an authoritarian sense, not in a top down sense, but parental, caring, nurturing, and at times, many times, mutual submission. I think sometimes when we think about church membership, when we think about what it means to belong to a church, we might see those concepts as, quote, requirements. That the local church is somehow putting requirements on your relationship with Christ. Or to talk about church membership is somehow presenting you with some hoops you must jump through or some boxes you must check off. No, to belong to the local church is simply living out your identity in Christ. Again, to belong to Christ is to belong to his body, to belong to his family. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus says some interesting things uh, to the apostles. We've just gone through this, this whole conversation. Who do people say that I am? Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. Peter is the one who answers, right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he has this weird little exchange with Peter. Peter, which, whose name means rock, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then we come to verse 19 in Matthew 16, and he says this, very peculiar language. I give you, Peter and the apostles, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, the Roman Catholic interpretation of this whole piece is that Jesus says, Peter, you're the rock, you're the foundation, you're the authority, you're the head of the church. And the Roman Catholic understanding of this, that's Jesus calling Peter to be what we would know as the first pope. And from Peter, the Roman Catholic Church believes there's this unbroken succession of authority from Peter to Clement and to all the other popes, even down to our current pope today. And they say, that's what Jesus meant by saying, you're the rock on this rock. And if you look at the papal seal on the Roman Catholic Church, the papal seal has the the big hat, the big mitre of the pope, and then it has what in the background? You see two keys. Crisscrossed, crossed signifying the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Because according to Roman Catholicism, Jesus gives Peter and the Apostles the literal keys to heaven so as to pronounce salvation and to pronounce condemnation on people. And so that even down to our current Pope today, when the Pope pronounces forgiveness, or when you as a Roman Catholic go to confession and that priest pronounces forgiveness, it's not just a nice thought. No, that priest, by the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, which is the authority of Christ himself through the Pope, he is literally pronouncing you forgiven of your sins if you perform these certain tasks and receive absolution. That's what the Roman Catholic Church sees as the the rock who who is Peter and the keys to the kingdom that is given to Peter. The New Testament does not teach that at all. Now, I would suggest that Jesus is saying Peter is the rock. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2 to tell us that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And in a sense, I would even see Jesus as giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter. Because who is it that preaches the gospel throughout the book of Acts, opening the door of the kingdom of heaven to the Jews, to the Gentiles, time and time again, except the apostle Peter? But I think there's something else here for the local church to this day. What does it mean for the church to have the keys of the kingdom of heaven and to loosen, to bind and all that stuff? Well, it means as a local church, As pastors and as members, we affirm, there's that word again, we affirm someone's profession of faith in Christ. That when you come and talk to us about what it means to join the church and I say, okay, can you tell me what the gospel is? Or can you tell me how you came to know Jesus? And you say a Bible incredible profession of faith in who Jesus is and that you know him, the pastors say, that sounds like a profession of faith in Christ. And we present that to the congregation, so we've heard their testimony of a profession of faith in Christ. Do you receive that? And the church says, yes or no. In that way, listen, the church is recognizing that which has already been transacted in heaven, that when that person came to faith in Christ, and they were received into God's people, the church hears that testimony of faith in Christ and they say, Yes, we affirm that. Not that we declare you saved, but that we recognize that in the courts of heaven you belong to Jesus by faith in him. And the church says, We see that and we affirm that. So that what is already done in heaven, which is invisible, is made visible in the local church. Turn over to the book of Matthew two chapters later than what I was just talking about, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Let's talk a little bit about church membership and affirming that statement of faith. Let's talk about what that means for church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. I always like to remind people that no matter where we're reading in scripture, it is the word of God. These are the words of Jesus. No more, no less, the word of God than Paul's words, but certainly, if anyone has the right to determine what is a church and what happens in a church, it is the Lord Jesus. Amen? And he tells us here what church discipline looks like in the local church at Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he's not listened, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if you agree on earth about anything and ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst them." This is Jesus telling us how to handle sin in a congregation. Not even just like flagrant sin, but how to handle offense in the local congregation. And what Jesus reveals here is the authority of the local church, understood, defined authority. If someone sins, go to them alone and tell them. If they don't listen, take two or three with you to establish all the facts. If they still don't listen, they still don't repent, tell it to the church. And if they won't even listen to the church, let them be removed from the congregation of the church. This whole process is meant to affirm people in their faith, to confront them in their sin, to call them to repentance, to reach out to them in love, but what ultimately may mean their removal from the congregation. Here in the words of Jesus we see mutual accountability. We see mutual submission. Mutual care. Mutual growth. Mutual love. Did you see here what was the goal according to Jesus? Look back at verse 15. What's the goal? Is the goal to kick people out? No. Look at what he says in verse 15. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What's the goal, according to Jesus, of confronting someone in sin, of dealing with offenses in a biblical way? What's the goal? That you gain your brother, that there's reconciliation, that there's redemption, there's forgiveness, there's understanding. We see that beautiful picture of harmony and reconciliation in the body of Christ. That's what discipline is for. But listen, it must be done biblically. It's interesting to me that when we talk about church discipline in the modern church, in many modern churches, it's frowned upon and it's looked at as some sort of authoritarian cult-like practice where, how dare you tell me what to do? How dare you tell me how to live my life? Again, I'm my own person, you do you, I'll be me, don't worry about it. Except that's not what you sign up for in joining a local church. You sign up for accountability. You sign up for submission in the name of love and redemption and reconciliation that you might be restored. But it is interesting to me how so many people shirk at the concept of church discipline, but they actually sort of follow the process that Jesus said themselves. They just skip a step, don't we? We might not like what Jesus says about go to them one on one and then take two or three and then take it to the church and if they don't listen, remove them. We don't like that, but we sure do like step two. We won't go to the person one on one. We won't take up our issue with that deacon or that church member or that pastor or the youth pastor or the senior pastor or my my teacher. We won't take up our issue with them, but we do like to go to step two and start talking about it with other people. The Bible has a word for that. That word is slander. When you refuse to go to someone and take up your beef with them personally, but you're more than happy to go talk about it with other people, that's called slander. We must follow the biblical mandate here. From the words of Jesus, the Lord of the church himself, what is the first step? You go to the person alone. And seek reconciliation. Then step two, and then maybe step three. But the goal, even here in this discipline, is love, care, and concern and submission. What is a child without the discipline of parents or guardians? What is a child at school without the discipline of the school and the teachers and the principal? Now, what makes you think that your life in Christ as a Christian, which is one of growing and learning and maturing, what makes you think that your life as a Christian doesn't need discipline and doesn't need growth, doesn't sometimes need correcting and admonishing? What would make me think that I, as a pastor, don't need that from you or from a deacon or from my fellow pastors? We all need this in the body of Christ. And without it, it's just like dropping a child off by the side of the road and driving off. You do you. Church membership does not grant or distribute or convey salvation. Neither does church discipline. Church discipline does not convey salvation. Church discipline does not take away salvation. But what does it do? Here's that word again, it either affirms your profession of faith in Christ as being true, because when you are confronted in your sin, you realize it, and you repent of it, and you turn away from it, and you seek forgiveness and restitution, or you refuse repentance, and you refuse to acknowledge wrongdoing, and there's something wrong with the fruit there. The church never says, you're not saved. The church never says, you are saved. What the church says in its affirmation and oversight is, your fruit is not matching what you claim. The evidence is not matching what you say. That's what the church says so that membership is a public, definable, open affirmation and recommendation that this person, by all appearances and fruit, has a credible relationship with Jesus Christ. It's an affirmation that this one, by all outward appearances and fruit, believes the gospel and belongs to the body of Christ. And I'll admit to you, this is very unfamiliar, even offensive, by today's standards. And you can hear it already, don't you? Who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Who are you Sunday school teacher or deacon or church member or pastor? Who are you to call me out on my sin? Again, no earthly body or elder conveys salvation or denies it, but it recognizes a credible profession and it affirms credible fruit. Because here's the truth, you can't just bring any Jesus, any gospel, and any doctrine into the body of Christ, you can't. There is fencing that must go on for the preservation of the body. Number one, this prevents false teaching. Number two, it prevents false conversions and confusion. It protects the people of God. It preserves the purity of the church. And listen, it shows mercy to those who are falsely converted. I'm going to tell you how this works in a very practical sense. To be a part of First Baptist Church Dumas, to become a member, you must attend the new members class. That's with me. And we have to have a conversation personally about your faith in Christ. You say, Pastor, that sounds like hoops, that sounds like extra steps. Here's what it does. Someone comes to the new members class. We open up the Bible. We open up our church's statement of faith. And there's no question from day one that the new members and the pastor have an understanding of each other. This is what we believe. This is what we teach. What do you think about that? Does that fit what you believe and what you think? Because in so many churches, here's what happens. Who wants to join the church? Raise your hand, come down front. Everybody claps. Everybody's happy to have someone. Five years down the road, that same person who joined the church with no oversight, no affirmation, no coming together to talk about what we believe and teach. Five years later, that person says, Oh, pastor, I had no idea your church believed this. I knew you were a Baptist, but I didn't know that meant this. I didn't know that y'all took that that stance on marriage between a man and a woman. I didn't know y'all were that conservative about pro-life and abortion causes. I didn't know that y'all believed in the eternal security of the believer. I didn't know that y'all believed that Jesus was the only way to heaven. I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't like that. And I disagree with that. I'm going to start arguing about it in my Sunday school class. I'm going to start disagreeing with it in my small group. You see how on the front end we say, No, this is what we believe. This is what we teach. You're welcome to join with us and be here, but this is who we are. And then it gives me time as a pastor to get to know who you are. And when I say, do you believe the gospel, how did you come to faith in Christ? Tell me about that. So if someone comes to our church and says, Pastor Matt, I want to join your church. I've been through the class. I want to come talk to you. I say, okay, tell me how you came to faith in Christ and your testimony sounds something like this. This is simplistic, I know. Well, pastor, I'm a good person, I do good things, I go to church, I've been to Sunday school, so I'm, I'm a good person, I'm saved, right? That gives me an opportunity as a pastor to say, no, 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 none of that stuff saves you. Only faith in Christ saves you. Let me help you understand what true faith in Christ means. And so you see how we preserve the church from false doctrine? But we also show mercy to those who might not be Christians but think they are because we're able to share with them what it really means to belong to Jesus by faith. This is so contrary to the world because it sets up propositional truth. This is true. This is true. This is true. This is true. And it dares to say we're going to hold you accountable to those truths. But I want you to hear me this morning. This is vital for the preservation of the body, the preservation of the gospel, and the preservation of the testimony of our church. Hear me today. Too many churches are no longer churches because they failed here. Too many churches are no longer churches because they failed to preserve the purity of their membership. They failed to preserve the purity of their doctrine. And somewhere along the way, making a compromise here and a compromise there, they got to the point where they completely lost the gospel. And God writes over the doorway of that church, it kabod, which means no glory, the glory has departed. Biblical conversion in the biblical Christ through biblical faith must be recognized and affirmed by the local body. And it's a commitment of you as the individual to the local body. But listen to me, it's more than that. It's not just you as an individual committing to the body, but it's the body then committing to you. When we baptize new believers here, we ask them three questions. Do you turn away from Satan and all the works of evil? Yes. That's me abandoning the world and turning from my sin. Do you turn to Christ and him alone for your salvation? Yes. That's me turning away from my sin and placing my faith in Christ. But then we ask one more question, don't we? Do you then pledge yourself to this church in service and love? That's you affirming the body, and the body affirming you. We're in this together. This is a covenant together. I always use the example of marriage. It's a good example for the church because the church is nothing less than the bride of Christ, right? How does this work out? You're dating, dating for a long time, and they say to you, you know I love you, I really do love you so much with all my heart and soul. I love you so much. I just don't want to marry you. How's that work out? Not well, I don't think. Membership is like that. I love you. I love Jesus. I want to be part of Jesus. And to be part of Jesus is to be part of his bride, the church. It's pledging to one another, covenanting together in discipleship, our growth and holiness as we become more and more like Jesus. Lastly, the question, what are the benefits of church membership? These are few and quick here together. What are the benefits? Number one, mutual commitment. Mutual commitment. Just like I said, you commit yourself to the body, the body commits itself to you. What, what, what kind of commitments do we make to each other? Well, our general wel- welfare. Is that physical? Yes. Is it emotional? Yes. Is it spiritual and mental? Absolutely. In all those things, whatever the burden is, In this mutual commitment called church membership, we say to you and you say to us, you are not alone. We are in this together, that we weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We pray over burdens, we share the burdens, we lighten the load with each other. You cannot do that by yourself. Number two, discipline and accountability. Again, not everybody's favorite because of our rampant individualism, but we need this. The goal of discipline and the goal of accountability is beautiful, and it's holiness. It's looking more like Jesus, and you need each other to do this. Again, you cannot do it by yourself, and you were never intended to. Number three, the benefit of family where we have loving relationships that might engender godly critique. When someone does come to you, as Jesus said, and says, Hey, I see this going on in your life, and I think it's a problem for you. Can we talk about it? Or maybe they say, I see this attitude or this motive. Something's not right there. Can we talk about that? Let's have lunch and talk about what that means. It might mean helping each other see blind spots. I don't know if you're thinking about this. When you said that the other day, did you mean that? Did you mean to say it that way? In family there's love and there's care and support in the good times, in the bad times, and even in the worst times. Lastly today, let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. There's two verses there as we conclude. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 through 25 if this sort of just puts a little period on everything we've talked about last week to this week, that's what these verses do for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You need a Biblical command to meet together and to be together in the body of Christ. There it is. Not neglecting to meet together. Listen, it also means that there's disobedience in not meeting together. That when we don't come together and we're not involved and we're not connected and we're not plugged into the local church, there's disobedience there. Because Paul says in verse 24, or the, the author, excuse me, the author of Hebrews says, I didn't mean to say Paul's the author, that's a whole controversy. Uh, the author of Hebrews says in verse 24, stir one another up to love and to good works. How can we do this if we're not together? How can you one another without being together? Listen, very simply, you cannot obey this command without the body of Christ. You cannot obey that command without the local church, without mutual submission, without love, without accountability. Let me break it down this way. It's always helpful to go backwards. Do you want to be like Jesus? Hopefully. Then be as Paul says, zealous for good works. How do you become zealous for good works? Well, you have to be stirred into them and you have to stir others into them. As he says here, verse 24, stir up one another to love and good works. If you want to be stirred and you want to stir, what do you have to do? Verse 25, you have to meet together. Membership helps you. Membership is beneficial to you. Hebrews 13, 17 gives us a wonderful little statement. It sounds so self-serving for a pastor to talk about Hebrews 13, 17. But in Hebrews 13, 17, the author talks about submitting to and obeying your leaders. I'm not even going to talk about that portion today. Does that make you happy? I want to talk about the next part of that. That as you submit to and obey your leaders in the local church, it says, without groaning and without complaining, he says, that would be of no benefit to you. So what's the opposite of that? as you submit to the local church without groaning and complaining, as you do that joyfully and lovingly with each other, then that must mean there is benefit for you, right? Do this without groaning or complaining. That wouldn't help you. But if you do it without groaning and complaining, oh, how helpful and wonderful it is for you and your walk with Jesus. Membership expresses love and obedience to Jesus. You say, I've submitted to Jesus, I've submitted to his authority. What do you think about his bride, the church? If you refuse to submit and to love and devote yourselves to a local body of Christ, if you refuse to do that, here's a question for you. What does that truly say about your relationship with Jesus? If membership proclaims that you belong to Jesus, and you go into the world and say, I'm a member of First Baptist Church or whatever church you choose to join, that should carry some weight because Jesus carries weight. And just as much as you would not want to wear the name of Jesus in vain and bring disrepute to his name and the gospel, you wouldn't want to do that for your local church either. That when you join a local church, you put on a banner, you put on a jersey and you say, I'm on that team. And it should influence how you live and how you act just as much as naming the name of Christ. So this morning, maybe you're a long time member of this church. Maybe you're visiting our church. Wonderful to have you here. Maybe you're here, you've been visiting for a long time and you're just holding out on membership for some reason or another. Hopefully for whatever reason, Member, non-member, visiting, holding out, refusing, whatever it is, hopefully this morning you've seen a biblical basis for church membership. What it means, what the benefits are, and it's ultimately for your good and for your holiness. That membership and discipleship and accountability are not against you, but they are for you. And we are all in this together to become more like Jesus. In a world of me, myself, and I, in a world that says, you do you, this is subversive. This is revolutionary. That it's not just about me. It's about us together. That to be devoted to Jesus is to be devoted to one another. That we are a family. Members, today I ask that you would recommit yourself to Christ and as you recommit yourself to Christ, members, think about ways that you can recommit yourself to one another. That might just mean making a new acquaintance today. Maybe you're a member and there's a member over here that you don't know. Meet somebody new today and introduce yourself and say we're we're in this together. We're family. Maybe it means going to Sunday school. Maybe it means going to small group and plugging in and and being with other people. Recommit yourself today to the Lord by recommitting yourself to his body, the church. Non-members today, whatever's holding you back, my question for you is very simple. Why drag it out? Why wait? If the question is, do you love Jesus and you say yes, love him by loving his people. Love him by committing yourself to his people. And then let's do this together. Let's go to war together. Because we are in it together forever. Our God, we thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you for the gift of church membership. What it means to belong to your body, the local church. This visible, outward manifestation of the kingdom of God. God, we thank you for bringing us to faith in Christ. And just as much as we thank you for bringing us to faith in Christ, we thank you for incorporating us into your body, the church. Help us today, members, non-members alike, to realize the biblical mandate for church membership, to realize the benefits, to plug in and connect and to serve and to love maybe as never before. Help us do that today by the power and the moving of your Holy Spirit, we ask all these things. In your name, Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. fbc fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.